0: A black man was lynched by a police officer in Minneapolis, and the people have had enough of it. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Last week, George Floyd, a black man, was lynched by four white Minneapolis police officers. He was pinned face down on the ground by the officers, as one of the officers pressed his knee to George's neck for over nine minutes, killing him. It's a reminder that however devastating the coronavirus has been to our country, it's not the only virus we're fighting. Racism lurks ever-present in our society, killing people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery directly, and killing so many others indirectly, as we've discussed, by creating the glide path for diseases like COVID-19 into Black communities. Of course, the murders of black people at the hands of police are not new, but they have newly emerged onto the national consciousness over the past 10 years because of social media. Today, almost everyone has an internet-enabled camera in their pocket, allowing images to hit the public within seconds or in real time. As much as they've raised a new national consciousness about police violence and the murder of black people, there's always a cost. The viral sharing of these videos has created a sort of pain porn, as activist Mickey Kendall calls it. Akilah Hughes, co-host of Crooked Media's What A Day, explained it well.
1: The video of George Floyd's murder was haphazardly retweeted into the feeds of black people everywhere to say... Look at this horrible thing a police officer did to a black person. But the voyeuristic nature of sharing black human beings murdered it like it's, you know, just a normal thing on a Tuesday didn't bring that guy back. It didn't stop racism. In fact, racism didn't end when we all saw Mike Brown laying in the street or when the Ahmaud Arbery video went viral or when Eric Garner was choked to death over a few cigarettes or Walter Scott getting shot to death. Are there people on Earth who are unaware that black people fear the police because The police disproportionately kill black people. You know, do we need videos to prove it? And do the videos ever result in justice? I mean, we've had smartphones that shoot videos since, what, 2005? We know this happens. Awareness isn't the point. We don't share white death like this, okay? When Steve Irwin died, we didn't share the video of the Stingray millions of times online to raise awareness. You know, they take down videos of ISIS beheading white men on YouTube. How many white men have you watched die in HD video? Can you name five? Because I bet you can't name ten.
0: Social media can be a force for good, but it isn't always. COVID 19 has been the first truly global public health disaster in recent history. It's also the first that's occurred in the era of social media. Social media was a critical tool in spreading important information early in the pandemic. Staying inside saves lives. Stay home. We're going to have to get creative in here.
1: Please pay attention. Stay home, save lives
0: but it's also been a source of really dangerous misinformation. Once this is all done and we can finally leave the house, there's gonna be one question that people want an answer to more than anything. Where in the hell did this disease come from? If you go online, there's no shortage of conspiracy theories. All right, so here's one. The virus was bioengineered in a lab by scientists to be used as a weapon or a form of population control.
1: To get rid of non-productive, Um, Chinese in the Chinese community.
0: Roseanne Barr is calling the novel coronavirus pandemic a ploy to kill baby boomers. I think they're just trying to get rid of all my generation. But there are some aspects of social media that make it uniquely dangerous for spreading misinformation in the context of a pandemic. First, we don't all see the same feed. Instead, our feeds are tailor-made for us based on our past engagement. That leaves some people inundated with misinformation in part because they're the people who are most likely to be vulnerable to it. Second, a lot of the worst misinformation on social media isn't even driven by real people, but bots who are created to amplify it. This all, of course, would be less important if social media companies decided to stop allowing deliberate misinformation on their sites. But they don't.
1: The tech billionaire says he is upset about the president's rhetoric, but also says Facebook is determined to stand by freedom of expression.
0: With all this, I asked you how you've used social media during this pandemic, and here's what you had to say.
1: I've seen far too much misinformation and mischaracterization on social media regarding COVID-19, so I've started using my platforms to create posts and threads designed to not only share my experiences on the front lines, but also to break down the science and the reasoning behind things like social distancing and masks. So many people who claim to know things about public health are making false claims that
0: people on social media are believing. The um, plandemic video, which is obviously meant to spark outrage and a conspiracy theory, so many people were watching that and thinking it was real. So I made that kind of a crusade of mine (laughs) to debunk it. And um, I feel like I actually did with a few people, so I'm not sure when my Facebook medal will arrive in the mail. Another aspect of social media is that it's changed how scientists interact with each other and the public. See, science is not a body of knowledge. It's a process. And that process is contentious and halting, debated and rehashed by the scientific community as experiments are done and interpreted. Scientific consensus isn't usually achieved for a long time. These debates are carried out among the community of scientists and academic journals over decades, rather than on Twitter over days. But social media has changed all that. And this virus has brought the discussion to the national spotlight. COVID-19 put scientists, and their science, into the public debate. And every finding was hashed and rehashed, even politicized by politicians looking to use a finding for political gain. All the while... Scientists and public health professionals have been using social media to educate the public and reinforce messages that could help people. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Feigolding, an epidemiologist who was one of the first to sound the alarm about the pandemic potential of COVID-19 way back in January. He built quite an online following, going from around 10,000 Twitter followers to nearly 200,000 in just a few months. But his tweeting also attracted the ire of other scientists who thought he was being an alarmist. And though he's an epidemiologist, he's not an infectious disease epidemiologist, leaving some scientists saying that he was speaking out of turn. Of course, we all know what happened. But his experience raises a lot of important questions about how scientists communicate with the public, the nature of expertise, and when we face the responsibility to speak up. More after the break. Dr. Eric Ding is an epidemiologist and senior fellow at the Federation of Concerned Scientists. His tweet back in January went viral, predicting the coronavirus was thermonuclear pandemic level bad. Since, he's used social media to drive conversation about COVID-19. He joins us to talk about his thoughts about that tweet and about how scientists should be communicating to the public. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Thanks. Really glad to be here.
0: How have you thought about both the responsibility and the potential risk of commenting uh, in the public debate about COVID-19? And and can you walk us through, you know, that first sort of thread of tweets uh, that went super viral uh, where um, you you highlighted the potential for this to go pandemic, but also drew quite a bit of criticism um, from within the academic scientific community?
2: Yeah, there is such a pull in academia in which you must be right or must have enormous mountain of evidence before you speak out. And then the competing side of, hey, we should be concerned. And we should not just be concerned quietly in our inner circles, whispering amongst each other, but we should actually let the world know that we're concerned and be willing to shout about it uh, when we have these concerns growing, uh, especially for something as huge as this. There's a uh, academia culture that oftentimes does not support this or and actually sh- actively shuns it. So, what happened in January was that, you know, first of all, I have relatives in China and they were telling me there's some really strange things happening in Wuhan. And so I was fed with a continuous flow of information that basically was quite alarming and very few in the West were covering. There's a few, you know, health reporters. But for the most part, the world was oblivious. And I was getting concerned. And I obviously couldn't shout about it without any shred of actual scientific data. So when the first preprint with the r naught of 3.8 came out, it it wasn't like the first signal out of nowhere. It was basically the first confirmation that this epidemic is really serious.
0: And for listeners, R naught is is shorthand for the number of new cases per individual case, and an R naught of three point eight is uh, extremely large. And since the R naught has been revised a bit as we've gotten more evidence, but you know, you see an R naught of three point eight, and that is um, that is a real pandemic potential uh, virus.
2: Yeah, and that's what got me really concerned. Now, in addition to the prior other data of this really really uh, scary virus emerging out of Wuhan, I felt like it was my You know, public health duty as an epidemiologist to shout about it. Uh, So I created this thread. Uh, It was a little rushed. It was like written like just a few minutes before midnight on January 24th. And I just had to get it out because the concern was just brewing for so long. And did we perfectly know everything? Was this a perfectly peer reviewed or is this just a preprint? No, it was not. But, you know, as, Dr. Mike Ryan, the WHO head of um, emergency preparedness, says, "If you want to know everything perfectly before you move on something, you will lose this epidemic. You will lose this virus if you move slowly. Moving slowly is basically the enemy of containment." And 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 I think. That is the right mantra, and he has spent his entire career fighting Ebola and every single epidemic and previous pandemic in the last thirty years.
0: So, how do you think about getting that that right mix? Like, what in your mind, where is the right place to uh, to to fire off um, a a tweet um, in terms of what we know, we don't? And I, and I have to say, like, I, you know, in the in the beginning, as, as an epidemiologist and former health commissioner, which is really the hat I wear when I comment on this. Um, I've gotten wrong on some things. Uh, you know, originally when we thought about masks, um, I was one of those who said, "Look, uh, you know, a surgical mask isn't going to protect uh, you from all that much, and N95s and need to be out uh, in the field, so you shouldn't necessarily be wearing a mask." I was wrong because, really, if more enough people wear masks, what you're doing is you're uh, reducing the the overall spread of the virus, and that's a good public health intervention. So um, I, I say this as somebody who who recognizes that I've been wrong on some of these things. What is your standard, right, in terms of thinking about when to say it versus when to wait? What is the what is the balance between the imminent need to have information out there versus the imminent need to make sure that that information is correct and accurate?
2: Uh, this is a really good question because it is a very complicated, and I want to stress that I have the utmost respect for Virologists and other infectious disease concentrated epidemiologists out there. Look, if I'm wrong, then nothing happens, right? But if I'm if I'm right and we don't act, then the tragedy upon the world, upon suffering of human civilization, is just immeasurable. And yet here we are. And so I balance it in certain ways, and then I balance it for my career. Like I'm not vying for a promotion or tenure in an academia track anymore. And so I have much less to lose than a lot of career academics. And at the same time, I'm not just uh, a primary care doctor, nor am I a school teacher. I am an epidemiologist with a doctor in epidemiology from Harvard. I was just trying to aware uh, make the world aware of this. And I think the downside of me being wrong um, for the world is very, very low compared to you know, not shouting. So I said, you know what? I have very little little to lose and I'm not endangering the public by saying this. So I'm gonna do it. And if I take the hit for it for being wrong, so be it, because I think the downside risk is just so enormous if we don't act.
0: So, you know, we, we um We are in a position now where, uh, you know, almost everybody has become an armchair epidemiologist of some sort. And so there's just a lot of armchair epidemiology that, you know, inundates Twitter. And I I think it's become a a bit of a source of confusion for folks. How do you recommend, you know, as somebody who's become a a sort of um, scientific spokesman on Twitter, how do you recommend that the casual observer of social media in this moment be able to tell the truth from the falsehood or at least, you know, what is um, at all evidence-based or evidence-driven in a a time where we don't have that much evidence um, from what's just completely fabricated. Because, um, you know, some folks know just enough about statistics uh, to be really dangerous. And um, I want to get your sense of, of how listeners should be thinking about sussing what's true from what's false and how to deal with the fact that the picture is changing every day and what was, you know, agreed upon by the scientific community uh, may be not agreed upon in, in a couple of weeks. Um, how, do we, how do we communicate that effectively and then how do we consume that uh, effectively?
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is a very tricky and very important question because in certain ways we've never been in this kind of situation where the general public, the entire world is living through the fog of war of figuring out the science as the scientists are doing Normally, scientists, you know, publish a few competing ideas and one could be wrong, but then, you know, they kind of like stabilize to a consensus theory of what is going on. Right now, we are going through this crazy fog of war together with the public, and public is watching every single step. And they're realizing, you know, scientists, we disagree a lot. What they don't understand that there is, you know, professional, natural, Uh, scientific disagreement that eventually gets resolved.
0: Mm -hmm. How do you think about the responsibility of scientists who are actively having a debate in the public eye in the context of a pandemic? How do you see them as being responsible to recognizing the political implications of uh, what we say or do?
2: Now more than ever, a public scientific debate is scrutinized so much uh, for any nuance of uh, or nugget in which it can, hey, that scientist said this, and can be quickly taken out of context. And I think science communication, we need to basically up our ante a little bit, because previous science communication is a, has been a very, um, like a low interest area, and that basically is a very casual, I'll, I'll translate it for a journalist who will translate it uh, for the lay public. Or it's just a very niche, oh, I'm just going to prevent my uh, results to a very narrow audience. But now, you know, one misquote can be exploded upon and exploited by one or the other opposing political side. And um, you have to understand the political optics. You have to understand how science can be misconstrued. It's kind of like having an awareness, it's, it's like there's situational awareness of if you're in a social context setting of what to say, what not to say, or be more careful. But here you need basically scientists need to understand social media situational awareness and also how to properly promote their findings in a way that is very easily understood by the lay public in a way that cannot be mis- misconstrued. And this is like the thing where no one, of course, teaches lay scientists about. And and of course, most scientists, other than, you know, a few with political um, experience like you and I, have zero understanding of political optics and of scientific communication in terms of optics. And I think this is where there's no training, but you, we really need to be careful not to allow our studies to be adding to the fuel fire of one side or another. And I don't have a good answer, but I think, I think, I think science communication has to up its ante beyond just here's my results, ta-da, and serve it in a very lay way where we can actually, you know, a science communicate, there has to be a second level of science communicators that basically translate in a, in, into a policy mindset for policy leaders, it's like, this is what could be used for policy, this is the actual implications for policy, and this is what politically we should do based on the results. Uh, It's kind of like a second layer, I feel, as opposed to, you know, making all the basic scientists who do the laboratory work and the the detailed statistical modeling work. I don't think we're ever going to teach all of them how to do that, but I think this is where I don't, uh, you know some you say armchair epidemiologists i think it's not armchair epidemiologists more like it's a second layer of science translation science communication who of people who, like you and me and others who understand political and pu- public policy they sh- should be actually elevated in actually speaking about the science translation beyond just because beyond just the basic scientists because they we understand these are the political implications and how they can be misconstrued.
0: So you know the the, the interesting uh, aspect of this is that you know I, I sort of um, in a lot of ways my goal here is to be able to um, break down the science for public consumption, and the hard part is that you know there is a political outcome of that. You know the science is has been pretty clear on a couple of things, even independent of some of the, the disagreements among scientists and. The vast majority of scientists agree that social distancing was necessary um in the absence of effective uh, control early on in the pandemic, that, you know if if it had happened earlier, we would have saved more lives, that we need. To let the science take the course when it comes to treatment and, and vaccinations, and so some of what we do does become political. And in some respects, science itself has been politicized through this process. You know, the belief in science from a foundational perspective, uh, in general, is has become politicized by uh, this this administration. And so, and so, you know, it's hard because on the one hand, one wants to stay apolitical because one does not want to bias the outcomes, but on the other, one wants to. Be honest about what the outcomes suggest about what we ought to do. And the hard part about what this president, I think, has done and what this conversation has sometimes turned into is that science itself, as a means of arbitrating how we intervene, itself has been politicized. And so, you know, one either tries to run away from that, in which case you're trying to make arguments for both sides, which is not not justified. And or the others, you just embrace it, which is to say, look, yes, I believe in science. I believe that science should guide what we do when we're facing a real uh, global pandemic. And um, I'm not going to be afraid to be honest about that, um, whoever it pisses off and however partisan it may seem. While at the same time, being willing to call out, you know, people on both sides who are not following the science. Uh, how have you thought about that with respect to how you communicate? Because I know that, you know, a lot of your followers don't agree with you politically. And so how have you thought about trying to be, objective about the science while also embracing the political implications of what it says we ought to do.
2: In terms of breaking down the science, you know, public health science, there's different kinds of science. There's like astrophysics, very basic biology that virology and immunology falls under. And then there's public health science where, you know, epidemiology is obviously the core, but it is a science in which it sits at the nexus of policy because it's public health, not personal health in which doctors treat patients one at a time. It is how do we set goals and influence the public so that everyone is healthy. And this sits at the nexus. So public health has to engage in politics, and it has to actually straddle that. And you have to have a mindset of understanding public policy and politics. So in, in in certain ways in which Oftentimes people say, stay in your lane or stay out of my lane. You know, you shouldn't speak out on policy if you're just a scientist. I think those days have to be put aside because this pandemic is the most political and public facing event in scientific history. And I think our public health science, we have to embrace that because you can't say, oh, I'll, I'll toe the line on this side only. no. These have to be merged together. And I think to a lot of my uh, followers who originally were conservative or liberal, I think they have to realize, you know, science is, needs to engage in public policy. And when I say things like trust Fauci, I don't mean trust one man. I mean, trust the science uh, and evidence-based approach that he stands for. And that this is what the science says. This is what the policy should follow not because I believe this or that, but because this is what the lay of science says. And whether it's masks, where the science now clearly says, you know, the masks are protective, they actually save people, or based on hydroxychloroquine, where the science right now shows not only a lack of benefit, but actually an increase, we have to revise our current policies around that. And the, the one rule is that Science doesn't double down when it, it hits a a roadblock or a brick wall in which this says this theory is wrong. Science r- evolves, and the evolution of of say I previously didn't believe in mass, but now I clearly believe in it. It's because the science said is not a weakness in which politically previously seen, but it's actually a strength because we we are not partisan and double down into our he- dig in our heels. We actually evolve. And would you want someone who doubles down into their corner or would you actually want science to tell you the truth of what is the latest thing? And I think it's that kind of combination nexus that's really key.
0: And I think that's really powerful. I think that's right. Um, There is a recognition of the scientific process that, in fact, it has to change. We have to learn more, and we have to adjust, and, and that ability to de-bias is what science is made out of. I really appreciate you joining us today to, to share your perspective on some of these uh, really important and interesting issues, and, and thank you for continuing to, uh, to work to educate the public on uh, what is you know the, the defining moment of our time, uh, and appreciate you making some time for us today.
2: Yeah, of course. Thanks so much, Abdul.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. People across the country are protesting to express righteous anger at police brutality and systemic racism. It's impossible to talk about this moment in our history without underscoring the impact of COVID-19, a pandemic that has ravaged lives and livelihoods in low-income Black communities. Between the failure of the public safety system and the public health system, this moment forces us to ask who's included in the word public in America to begin with. Our public health system failed Black people. Our public safety system kills Black people. But it's not just that. Our public education system neglects Black children, our public infrastructure is crumbling in Black communities, and our public policy doesn't represent Black people. As people express their righteous anger, I hope they'll always center the need to hold and protect Black life. Part of that is making sure that protests themselves are safe. COVID-19 is still out there, even if the narrative has moved on. And while many protesters are doing their part to keep masks on, some aren't. I'd never want protests that are intended to protect and uplift the dignity, sanctity, and power of Black life to lead to the loss of more Black lives. If you're out there this week, as I have been, I hope you'll stay safe and take care to protect yourself and others. Also, starting today, we're changing the structure of our show a bit. We'll be going to one episode a week rather than the two we've been dropping since March. That's not because COVID-19 is anywhere near behind us, but because we feel our discussion has finally caught up. New episodes will be dropping every Tuesday morning, and as always, I hope that you'll rate and review the show, and I hope that you'll keep listening. Next Tuesday, we'll be chatting with a guest we've heard from before, Professor Tara Sinclair, a macroeconomist. We'll continue our discussion about the financial toll of this pandemic. We want to hear from you. Email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com. How has COVID-19 changed your financial outlook? Have you lost a job? If you haven't, and your workplace is opening back up, will you actually go back to the office? And how has COVID changed your spending? Again, email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com. If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. And if we want to change the leadership that's led us into this crisis, we have to win in November. In order to do that, we've got to win in some of the most critical battleground states in America. I hope that you'll go to votesaveamerica.com to sign up and join me in adopting the state of Michigan so that we can turn it blue in November. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Uviera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer, And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, reminding you that Black Lives Matter. Thanks for listening.